Welcome back to Off She Goes, a podcast that features conversations with Gen Z girls of color who are making bold moves and changing the world. Hi everyone, I'm so excited to be recording a new episode today. I just want to quickly go through some updates with my life because I did mention in the previous episode that I was hoping that one of my summer internships would extend until fall. And I'm really pleased to tell you that it did get extended. So I'm really happy about that. So I had two internships this past summer. One of them already ended. And that was a really amazing internship. I loved it. I loved the people that I got to work with. And I learned new skills in that internship. And the other one was also about to end too. Was scheduled to end last week. But you know, before the internship ended, my boss talked to me and told me the news that They want me to stay with them until December. So I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I just want to report that to you. Going back to this podcast episode, I'm really excited for you to hear this week's guest. I spoke to Shauna Abraham, who is a 21-year-old global health enthusiast, dancer, co-founder and COO of the Nosley Project, and author of Rise, How Empowering Women Elevates Us All. She's also a senior at Duke University studying health and innovation for black and brown women. In this episode, Shauna shared her process of writing Rise, the importance of women empowerment, what the Nosley Project is all about, how she uses dance to engage with her creative side, and how she overcomes imposter syndrome. We had a great conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Before I get into it, though, just a little bit of a heads up. You'll hear some loud banging background noises. Uh, I wasn't aware that construction workers would come to my house to fix the roof, so it was really bad timing when I recorded this episode, because literally the hour that we recorded was the exact hour the workers came to fix the roof. So I try my best to minimize the noise. It's really not that loud and crazy, but yeah, I just want to let you know in case it annoys you, and I apologize in advance. That's my heads up. I'll stop talking now because this episode is an hour long, and so without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, Shauna. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Before I ask you questions, can you give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself first? Yeah, of course. So, hi, everyone. My name is Shauna Abraham, and I am the author of Rise, How Empowering Women Elevates Us All, which is my first published book that just published this week, which is really exciting. Um, I'm 21 years old. I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, but I go to school at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and I'm studying health innovation for women of color to address the health disparities there. And I'm also the co-founder and current COO of Nasley Project, which is an Instagram platform uh, created to spread awareness about domestic violence and related issues in the South Asian community. That's so cool. So you grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, so I'm wondering what your experience was like growing up there. So I was really, like, I live about, like, 40 minutes outside of Chicago, like, city proper, Um, but I think in general, like, I lived in a really kind of, like, more, like, middle-class neighborhood, so, you know, I was one of, like, a few different, like, South Asian families here, but it is a majority white, but I also was able to maintain a strong connection with my culture because my parents have a really, we have a very strong Indian community that's based more on, like, the Morton Grove area of Chicago, if anyone knows that. Um, And so we went to church every week um, at my Indian community, and we had a lot of different Indian events growing up. I'm a dancer as well, so I did a lot of Indian dance growing up, um, Indian classical and like Bollywood styles. 
Um, so I feel like it was, while I wasn't a majority white community, I still had a really strong sense of identity mm -hmm. um, with my cultural identity as well. And it was definitely very interesting to navigate being, you know, one of a few, like several Indian, I wouldn't say I was like the only one, but you know, we weren't like a majority, it wasn't majority people of color here. So you definitely still see like small instances of being kind of considered like an other based on the right. way people view. you. Mm -hmm. And you're currently studying a specialized major at Duke. You're studying health innovation for black and brown women. So mm -hmm. when did this interest of yours begin? Like, would you say that your identity and upbringing lead you in that direction? Yeah, I would definitely say that. I think, you know, growing up with a strong, you know, Desi community and specifically like Malayali Christian community, that's like the community I'm a part of, you kind of can tell um, while we were in America and I grew up and I was born here, you could definitely see a lot of like the strong cultural influences and the issues of, um, that are present within our culture still present and prevalent. Um, for example, in my community, a lot of people don't talk about domestic violence. They don't talk about mental health issues. They don't talk about the alcoholism um, that's present in our community. And I think what I noticed was like the fact that a lot of people were suffering in silence and no one was saying anything about it. And, you know, we all like would stick together and we would put on these facades with each other about like how everything was perfect, but clearly things were not always perfect and people were still struggling. Um, so I think I was always just really interested in learning about other people and other cultures. And I realized that there's so many, you know, disadvantages of being one, a woman um, in a lot of different cultures and not because inherently women are, you know, something bad or negative, but because there's a lot of gender stereotypes, cultural norms that tend to put women down a lot. Mm -hmm. So when I went to college, I actually was at a different university for my first year where I was exposed to public health for the first time. And I fell in love with it. I thought it was so great that there was a way to be in the health field without necessarily being a physician. And so then I just started like doing a lot more community-based work and connecting with women of different backgrounds. And I realized I wanted to kind of like dedicate my career to supporting the women that are often left behind and like voiceless and those like huge international national concerns and have other people making decisions for them rather than taking their own voices into account. Mm -hmm. And based from that story of yours, now I want to discuss RISE in your book. So what is RISE all about? And can you give our listeners like a synopsis of it? Yeah, for sure. So RISE was actually created based on kind of like a question I had last year. So last year, um, when I was talking to a professor that was helping me kind of start this journey to be an author, um, he was asking me, you know, what is your like 10 year goal? Or like, what do you want to where do you see yourself? And I decided, you know, I really want to work with women. Like I love working with women. I love collaborating with them. And I think they have so much to offer. And I've looked up to so many different people and so many young female figures. And one of them specifically is Malala, um, which I'm sure everyone's pretty mm -hmm. familiar with. Mm -hmm. And she's great. I was telling him, you know, I think it's so, she's so inspirational and, but it's like so crazy. Cause it's like one story, right? Like one like crazy event that happened to her, like one incredible story. And that's like kind of like part of the reason why she got an international attention that she did. Mm -hmm. But my question was, is I don't think that there's just one Malala out there. There has to be like thousands, if not millions more Malalas out mm -hmm. there, quote unquote. And, you know, how do we, why aren't they getting the international attention? Like, what are their stories and how do we cultivate and how do we support young women to becoming the like next change makers that you know create this like global 
shift in cultural norms and you know helping each other and creating our making our world a better place mm-hmm. um, the rise is really about kind of addressing the core principles of change makers which i was able fortunate enough to interview women from across the world for um, and it addresses like kind of like the general stereotypes and you know power dynamics that women face across the world some are more specific in certain areas and some are kind of more general and it discusses kind of you know like why female empowerment is not just something that helps women it helps all of us because women mm-hmm. are basic centers of a majority of our communities and if you're not tapping into 50 percent of the population's like full potential like what are we doing <laughs> like we're right, like not right. anywhere where we could be um so Rise was created just to kind of like offer like a toolkit for young women because Rise's primary demographic is for young women. What was really exciting was when I started like kind of telling people and fundraising for my campaign for Rise. There was so many people outside that demographic that really wanted to be involved in it. Mm-hmm. So it's also for their support network. So it's for the people around them, whether it be parents, guardians, teachers, friends, you know, extended family. Um, potential mentors and sponsors, you know, like what can they do to help aid this movement and kind of give them a glimpse through the eyes of a young woman currently living in our modern society and seeing how even being relatively empowered the way I am and in my status in life, there's still challenges I face every day. Um, So kind of giving them like an inside look and offering some concrete, you know, recommendations and solutions. Well, not solutions, I would say, but recommendations for sure um, on how they can help the young women around them. I love that. I love that mission. Yeah, 100% agree that there's so many women out there that are just doing so many amazing things that are not as popular or as known as Malala, but definitely out there that doing their own thing and like changing their own communities. And like, I kind of relate to that too, in the sense that that's why I made this podcast is because there's so many, I guess, unheard stories from women in my own community. Like I was, you know, earlier this year, like I was just so inspired by the woman that I get to work with, that I get to collaborate with. And I'm like, how come, you know, there's so many people out there that don't know their stories and I want their stories heard and I want people to know about them and the work that they do and how they're just disrupting the status quo. So I made this podcast. So yeah, similar to your book, I love that there's this, you know, resource, especially for young girls to seek inspiration from, for sure. I think that's so dope because, you know, things like this, it's like people kind of see young women as like, oh, like, you know, they're passionate or they're fiery Mm -hmm. or have so much potential, but they never will give the opportunity, as many opportunities for us to really show, demonstrate that. Um, so I think we just need more young women, you know, like you, like me, who kind of just like create those opportunities for ourselves and pave the way for others. Because exactly. if it's not about, it's about collaboration, it's not competition. You know, mm-hmm. there's no reason why your podcast cannot be as successful as my book, as successful mm-hmm. as someone else's organization. Like right. we can all, like that narrative that there's not enough success or room for everyone at the top is false. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, and especially people that in the way I grew up, it was always considered like a scarcity mindset. Like if you succeed, someone else can't succeed. If someone else succeeds, you can't succeed. And I, you know, it took a while to really actively reject that. But then, you know, it's so much more fun seeing other women as your friends. As, it's like, once you start, like stop seeing everyone as a competition, like it just creates such a more like loving, energetic, exciting environment because it's tiring to be completely honest. Like I got to a point where I was like, it's honestly like I was never that like antagonistic towards other women because I feel like I grew up in a very like female dominated household and like I personally just always connected with women so much easier than anyone else. Mm-hmm. But 
I feel like once I like fully let go of like that need to like compare and compete with other women, like it just opened up so much room to like create authentic connections and relationships. And it's gotten me so many more opportunities. Totally. Than yeah. It reminds me of that quote or like that saying that there's only one seat at a table, you know, and I'm like, it shouldn't be like that. So I feel like definitely, you know, creating our own table and empowering each other and helping each other get to the top. Mm-hmm. And so how long was the process of, you know, publishing your book, like from the idea to the finished piece? Yeah, so it took about, you know, the idea was in the making for about a year, um, a year and like a few months. And then the actual like, work started about 10 months ago. Um, and for anyone who knows, and was like kind of along the journey, they knew it was like a very like chaotic, hectic journey. And I think because a lot of times so the first half of it, really, I think, there's a strong sense of imposter syndrome. You know, it was me. I was like, what good am I? Like, I have never done any formal Mm -hmm. research experience. It's not like I'm an activist or organizer. Um, And, you know, I have, I care about the subject a lot and I care about, you know, supporting young women. I love mentoring young women, but I don't have any quote unquote qualifications for this. Like what, why would anyone want to read this? You know, Mm -hmm. why is my voice even, it doesn't even matter. Right. And so for the first few months, like I kept catching myself, like self-sabotaging in small ways. Like I would be kind of like half doing like certain tasks for it, or I wouldn't be starting my outreach early enough. You know, I would like kind of Mm -hmm. delay it a long time, or I would like, wouldn't even meet like my debt, like word count deadlines, like perfectly. I'd kind of be like maybe a couple thousand short. And I think a part of it was because I kept feeling like I didn't deserve it and that it wasn't going to be successful. And so I kept kind of like, introducing obstacles at every point thinking it was going to stop um and that eventually someone would be like you know what this is not for you like you're going to cut it off like you're not clearly not ready like I was wanted someone to tell me I wasn't ready because I don't think I was ready to acknowledge that I was and that you're never going to actually be ready to do Mm -hmm. something you kind of just do it yeah Um, but for some reason you know things ended just keep like kept working out like like almost like against my will and then I'd like kept going and going and I was like Mm -hmm. oh no like I really have to do this and then I think once I reached that hump like imposter syndrome is still always going to be there but it was quieter and I realized like I cared about rise like there's a reason why I started I care about the young women I could reach I cared about like the cultural shifts and that I could help introduce Mm -hmm. um and I just really loved the women I was connecting with and the you know the reaction and like the response that I was getting from the people that were just eagerly waiting for it to come out and I think you know you realize that there's like often sometimes it's like really you like you're the biggest obstacle to your own success and like you have to just kind of quiet down that voice and understand that you know you're never going to be 100% ready but you know the things that you produce even if it's not perfect like can really create a change that is actually beneficial for not just you but for a lot of people Mm -hmm. yeah I definitely think that a lot of people don't start something because there's that fear you know like that already like anticipating and like the obstacles that they're anticipating along that process I mean it's you know easier said than done but honestly don't let that you know fear stop you from like going all in and like diving into what you really want to do 100% I think it's definitely so interesting because I used to be someone that was like always so afraid to start something and then I just like all of a sudden became this person that I was like I'll just try anything kind of mm-hmm. once you know and like yeah. it didn't matter to me like I never put too much stock into it of like whether other people considered it a success or a failure. And Rise was the first thing in a long time where I really felt that kind of like insecurity coming back. But I think 
it's just like kind of like a muscle you gotta just like keep doing things like for yourself yeah. like seeing if they work out and like not putting so much stock into what is considered a success or a failure because you trying itself is like a success in a way exactly exactly what was your favorite part of writing the book I think you know like the actual writing part you know was fun but in certain you know certain moments but I think what I really enjoyed the most was interviewing you know the young women that I got to connect with because it was just like such a different experience because I've never really done anything like rise in the sense of like the amount of cold emails and you know cold calls I did like Mm -hmm. I was never really someone that was really that good at it to be honest like I consider myself pretty bad at it because I was always very like kind of hesitant to do it but then with rise it was like I obviously had to cold email pretty much everyone because I didn't know many like activists and you know advocates in that space mm-hmm. and so once I did it you know initially like the first interview I remember I think I did might have been Pranjal and I was like a little bit nervous but like within seconds it was like fine and what's been so cool about it was even these girls that are like so different from me um, in every possible way, you can always find like some sort of common ground and like some common experience that can really like bond you guys and like, you know, really connect you in a way you would never expect. Mm-hmm. Like I remember with Latia, who is um, one of the activists I featured, who is an environmental activist from Fiji. Like I woke up at 5 a.m. for this call because of the time difference. And mm-hmm. so I was exhausted. I was like, I want to just, like, it's probably going to be 20, 30 minutes and it'll be done and then I can go back to sleep. And I've never talked to Latia before. Like we just emailed a few times to set it up. And so, but like for some reason, like the moment we started talking, it was just like, we were like old friends. And so we ended up like, I was so energized by like the first five minutes. Like we ended up talking for two hours and it was just so cool. Cause it made me realize, you know, like, while we're so like society's convinced us that like, we're so different from each other and that like, there's no way we could connect mm-hmm. with like people that seem different than us. But in reality, if you just take the time to talk to people, like, nine times out of 10, you'll find some common ground and people are genuinely pretty nice, you know, when you actually take the leap to like get to know them in a way that's authentic and genuine um, and not something just to like, for like a means to an end. Um, so I think that was definitely like the friendships and, you know, the new connections I've made. Like I love watching those girls, you know, continue to like disrupt and like be the advocates and activists that they are because now it's more personal because I know them um and so I really love gushing about them I literally will gush about them the day I die and I have no apologies for that um it's just cool you know to see your network growing and seeing that there's people from across the world that like really love the idea of rise and they want to share it um and it just makes you realize it makes the world like both bigger and smaller at the same time which I think is a cool feeling yeah, I relate to that too with, you know, the podcast and like interviewing people and cold emailing and DMing people and asking them if they're interested. I really like the point that you brought up about connecting with someone that's maybe like you seem completely different or like opposite sides of the spectrum and finding that common ground. And like, I love when um, I think there's like a few episodes of mine where I expected that we would talk for only like 45 minutes and then we would go over like an hour and just talking about and really connecting like to a deeper level and also just following them throughout like even after the episode ends after I posted the episode and like you know still keeping up with them maybe through social media and like seeing their growth and um like seeing their goals that they mentioned in the podcast come to fruition it's just so exciting and I love just seeing them thrive and succeed yeah 
hundred percent. Like I remember starting or like following your podcast, I think like really early on when you started and to see like, even like after a few months, how much you've grown and like the amount of people you've talked connected. It's like, it's so like, I didn't even meet you until right now. Yeah. But, like, I was, you know, in, I was like one of the supporters. I was like, yeah, like I love watching Thank this. And, like I love seeing it. I think it's just so cool. You know, like when you give young like girls the platform and like, just like let them do their thing. Like, they can be such change makers in their own way and like whether it be invisibility representation you know on the ground work I think all of it's important and it's just like so exciting to see that like young women are now like at the forefront of so many things and like recognizing right. the power yeah is there anything you wish you knew before writing and publishing your book like do you have any tips for aspiring authors yeah I would suggest you know I kind of went into rise like not really even knowing what I wanted to do with it a hundred percent um which I would you know it definitely opened up like you know my mind of like what it could be I think though it's when you're writing a book it's like not just like an essay you know like I think we're so especially like those of us who are in college like we're so used to just like mm-hmm. spitting out spitting out essays for like one day or a few maybe a week or two you know and with a book you know it's it can be used as a a tool for opportunity, you know, so really understanding and like, I think pulling from something that matters to you a lot is one of the best ways to write a book because you need to involve your experiences within it. And I remember writing Rise, like the first draft I wrote, the full draft I wrote, like the main, you know, feedback I got was like, there's nothing about you in Ashana. Like you like barely talk about yourself. Because to me, I was like, I don't, need to talk about myself like no one wants to know about me I'm like a nobody from mm-hmm. you know Chicago, like suburbs of Chicago but once I like started involving my own personal experiences it started meaning a lot more to me because I started realizing it's those personal experiences that people connect with right mm-hmm. and so I think you know for any aspiring author or writer in general like really pulling from what you're passionate about and what you care about the most is probably the number one thing because that's what's going to keep you going even when you like start feeling a little fatigued from all the work um, because it is a lot of work and I think also choosing narrowing down your subject can sometimes be helpful because for a rise it was like female empowerment is like it can go with anything right so I wanted to talk about every issue under the sun but then my editor's like Shauna no one's gonna read a 700 page book and I was like you're absolutely right so there was some subjects I couldn't touch on some subjects I only got to touch on briefly but you know like the book it's just like a step, right? It's a step in your journey. And so with Rise, it's like, yes, I like wrote Rise and it's done. And you're like, I'm kind of like you were like, once I put it out there, I was like, I don't even yeah. like want to look at it again, just because like how much I've been looking at it and working on it. Um, but now I'm like, I'm starting to get like connect with different people. I'm starting to reach different, you know, a different demographic and get opportunities. And so I think really going about it with intention and understanding like, what do you want this book to do? Do you just want it to share your experience? Do you want it to create opportunities for yourself? Do you want to shed light on the new, you know, a new experience or a certain issue that you don't think is getting attention? I think that when you have a really strong idea of like what you want this book to look like and what you want it to serve, it can help streamline that process so much. And also, I guess, like, another thing is also making sure you have a team, um, whether you're solo publishing or not, you know, having a team that really understands the subject matter that you're trying to go at, the direction you want to go in. Because I think, in my perspective, there was a lot of clashes. um, And it wasn't because, like, my publisher was really, you know, rude or anything. They definitely tried their best, but there was definitely a lot of, like, 
clashes in like the things I wanted and like how they interpreted those things. And so mm-hmm. have people that understand your subject matter, understand the way you work, understand like what's important to you is going to make it a lot less stressful, I think, in the end. Mm-hmm. And also just talking to other writers, I think you know, reaching out to other people that have done it before and like asking their advice, like everyone has a different experience. So, you know, getting as much, you know, information as possible and reaching out to people that you think will be interested in your subject or help you is always going to be beneficial to you in the end. Those are really good tips for sure. So based from your interviews, what do you think are the core values of female change makers? Like what does a female change maker really look like and act like? Yeah. And I think, you know, the simple answer, you know, is the fact that there's no like one way to look or act. It's basically just every person is different. And so therefore their leadership style and things, the way they go after, you know, what they want or, you know, their activism is going to be an advocacy. It's going to be different. But the four, you know, core principles that I highlighted within RISE was a strong support network, um, authenticity, the presence of adversity, not the absence of it and resilience um, because those four you know qualities and characteristics like really kept coming up in every single story and so number one support network which I think luckily we're starting to get a lot more you know kind of media about like the importance of a support network which I think is really great but for me personally like I had a strong support network with like my family and friends but to be honest like I didn't really have that many mentors or you know sponsors I didn't really know what the difference was so having a strong mentor to help give you career guidance and, you know, offer you that like professional advice, but also having sponsors that will open doors for you and get you those opportunities is equally important. Right. And I think a lot of like women, especially young women don't really know the difference because mentors can be there to give advice as much as they want and guide you. But sponsors are the ones that will really open doors and tell people, you know, like, Hey, like Gabby's a great girl. Like you should get her in this opportunity or you should talk to her for this. Um, And for me, especially like, I need to like start being a little bit more, you know, selective, I think about who's going to be that person who like elects me as a protege almost. Right. And so that's really strong as well as like having, you know, choosing your family, who's like your core and who's going to like affect you on the day to day. Right. Um, Having female friends, you know, female friendships are so important because other women are the ones that are going to be able to understand your experience the most for certain issues. Right. Mm-hmm. And then male allies, there has to be, you know, men are part of the movement as well. You can't just like say like, it's not like all men like aren't feminists or mm-hmm. the fact that they don't want to help. There's a lot of men that do want to help and males that do want to help, but they just don't know how, um, or they're like worried because of certain stereotypes. So really involving them and understanding like the male identifying people are not our enemies. <laughs> like they're yeah. supposed to be allies and they're there to help. I think is something. So understanding the different levels of a support network and really like actively developing upon that through your lifetime is something that will get you so much further than you trying to do anything yourself. I want to go back to like the sponsors. How would mm-hmm. you recommend finding and connecting with those people? You know, sponsors are really interesting because I think it's almost kind of, it's like a harder thing to find, I think, than a mentor for sure. Because mentors are just kind of giving you their advice. Um, sponsors are the ones that are really like kind of figuring out how to like open doors for you and you know getting you in getting you like your foot in the door right and so in my experience I found that honestly just acting authentically and like working you know hard and connecting cold emailing letting more people know about you and knowing what you can do and knowing that you are reliable and dependable and a person that delivers 
is super important because, you know, while I think a lot of women kind of think of the whole, like, keep my head down, work hard, and someone's eventually going to recognize me. But like, if you're not letting people know that, like, you're there to recognize, no one's going to know about you. Like, be yourself, right? Like, be uh, confident, be hardworking, you know, be clever, you know, be all those things that you already are. But also, like, don't be afraid to, like, let people know you're there. Because Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for me, like, I've had sponsors come in, like, the most, like, kind of like unordinary circumstances it's like I was just like a really dedicated student and then my professor ended up saying like oh recommend you for this position or this you know internship or just you know like kind of like being an authentic person and like you know having people recognize like oh like I look John as a person you know what else is she doing right oh she's done this this and this like maybe she would be a good fit for this so it's a little bit more difficult to kind of get those people and I think that you can turn some mentors into sponsors if you kind of like edge them into that yeah. role of like hey like I'm looking for an internship or I'm looking for a job or I'm looking for this opportunity like do you know anyone sometimes mentors just like won't think about it because they may be mentoring a lot of other people at the same right. time which is like not devaluing your relationship with them but just kind of indicating that they might not have it at their forefront they're like oh like I could open a door for this person like if I just remember that Gabby was looking for a job here in like this field and I know this person right Mm-hmm. So it does take a little bit of work on your end, I think sometimes, but I think, you know, the more you kind of establish yourself and like, kind of like keep delivering just like for the sake of your own, you know, journey and like understanding that like you want to deliver because you care about something, the more people will recognize it and put, you know, their faith in you and really believe in you and believe in your potential over just like your accomplishments. I feel like I'm the most familiar with mentors because I love cold emailing and basically, you know, just asking people maybe from my network, for example, through LinkedIn, any advice they have, com majors in my college or someone who works in a company that I may want to work for in the future, like asking for advice. But I definitely love your point of reaching out to them again and asking if they know any internships, if there are any job openings in their own company, because I feel like that also gives you a leg up because it comes from like a recommendation from them already, like a connection Mm -hmm. within the company. So yeah, I, I feel like that's a really overlooked point is reaching back and talking with, you know, a mentor again and asking for opportunities. 100%. And now I want to talk about the importance of female empowerment when it comes to societal elevation. You've kind of briefly talked about this earlier, but I just want to hear like further your thoughts about it. Yeah, for sure. So I think one thing that was really interesting was I kind of like went into public health because it's all about kind of like treating populations over individual patients, um, which I think is like kind of more up my alley. And something that's like constantly like reaffirmed in like so much global, so many like different studies in global health is the fact that they put women at the center of their initiatives. Now, why do they put women at the center of their initiatives? Well, in most societies, women are kind of the center of their communities. They are the caretakers. They're the ones doing all the domestic labor. And sometimes they're already doing that on top of like their traditional labor, right? Their traditional work and jobs. And they like have actually a lot of power if you just tap into it, right? Because they're the ones making all the household decisions. They'll decide what food's being eaten, you know, who visits the doctor, like, they're the ones that are, like, the barriers to different illnesses, you know, and they're, like, kind of, like, the people, like, underlying that may not get recognized, but they're the ones that are keeping our societies functioning, right, and so the reason why I thought it was so interesting was because, like, no one ever talks about how, like, you know, all these initiatives center women, but, like, no one ever talked about it, like, outside of, like, my classroom, and so I think a lot of people don't recognize that, like, when you empower women, it's not 
just about like letting them have a better quality of life they give a better quality of life to everyone because for example there's like a statistic where like if you you know educate a young man you know he'll give about like 30 35 percent like reinvest it back into the community when you do a young woman they'll reinvest about 90 percent of it back into the community you know of her earnings back into the community which is a huge difference it's almost it's triple right and so people were you know people we've had like a you know, historical devaluation of like the female life, right? You know, there's female feticide, you know, and there's like so many people that consider young women a burden. So they marry them off early, you know, but Mm -hmm. in reality, it's like the women are the burden here. It's they're the ones that could really elevate your status, elevate your quality of life, but you're just not recognizing that, right? Because you're not letting them participate in their economy. You're not giving them a chance to be educated, you're not giving them access to proper resources, health resources, you know? And so I think what people need to realize is like, you know, it's beyond just like tapping into 50% of like your economy. Like every aspect of your life is going to improve if you just let women have equal opportunity and access to the things that men have traditionally had for centuries. Right. And also equal access to that respect as well. You know, I think not just opportunity, it's respect and understanding that like it's not just young women that need to believe that they deserve these things. Like everyone around them also needs to believe that they deserve these things as well because they do. And so like we can't do it alone because yes, young women have created so much change and like they are so strong on their own, but we are stronger together. And so we need to have the communities involved and help create a widespread recognition of the contributions women have been giving and therefore make it easier for them to not just improve their own quality of life because it helps them, but because, you know, our societies as a whole will become so much better because of it. Speaking of resources, how does representation and, you know, access to resources like RISE contribute to the movement? I think, you know, it's about like helping young women realize like they can do the things that they've always wanted to do. And I think I remember you know, being a young girl and like, I, for example, I've loved books since I was a kid. Like, it's like a running joke in my family that like, ever since like I went to my first library, like I would like pick out whatever small like little books or whatever for like three or four year olds. And I like go to my mom and be like, read it like before Mm -hmm. I could even read. And then eventually I learned how to read. Right. And so, but you know, in all the thousands of books I've read, you know, there's maybe been a dozen that have like featured a young South Asian woman on the cover, you know? And growing up, there wasn't that many, like, South Asian women, like, outside of, like, what I knew about, like, Bollywood, you know, that were doing anything in media, in major media as well. And so I think as a young girl, you know, everyone I knew was, like, what, they were told me I had three options for a career. It was doctor, lawyer, engineer. And I was like, well, I suck at math. I hate arguing. And I don't want to work on a cadaver. So I don't want to be a doctor. And so then it seemed like I was like not meant to do anything that I wanted to do because my interest fell so far out of the traditional path. But when you have representation and you have visibility, you allow women to believe in themselves and believe that their dreams and their goals and aspirations are valid and that they're not just valid, but they're possible to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. And so for, with Rise, like I really took that into account because I knew that, you know, I only get to write Rise once, right? So I wanted it to be as you know representative as possible. So what I did was I interviewed change makers from a bunch of different backgrounds um, and often the voices you don't hear. So with like, for example, climate activism, you see a lot of young white women like Greta who are doing amazing work, but they don't necessarily reflect the populations that are like uh, being truly affected by this, mm-hmm. right? So that's where I got, I reached out to Latia and Shie to offer me 
you know, to let them have a platform to share their perspective in a different, to a different demographic than they might already be reaching, you know? And just in general, you know, we need to start seeing how like young women from all over are making change, you know, and it's even in like the cultures that have historically put them down, like they're fighting against that. And like, it should inspire young women to do the same. And like, even with the cover, I was like so particular. I was like, I want it to be young women of color. You know, I want to be able to have more young girls like see this book. And at the very least, all they do is look at the cover of Rise Day. Like I see myself or I see someone I know on this cover and like, it helps them feel like they deserve a spot there, right? As well, like even my mom, when she saw my cover for the first time, she was so excited oh, by the Indian that. woman on the cover, you know? And it was like, my mom looked nothing like that. Mm-hmm. But like she was just the fact that there was an Indian woman on the cover, you know, made her feel so proud because it made her feel like she was being recognized, their contributions are being recognized. And so, you know, visibility and representation is one of those things I think gets swept under the rug all the time because people consider it like, the least pressing issue but to be honest I think it's one of those things that like if you really prioritize it like it can create a huge wave of change just because then you have so many young women realizing like they can do so much more than what the people around them have been telling them. Yeah I 100% agree with that and now I want to shift the conversation and talk about the Nosley project which Mm -hmm. is a digital space that worked towards ending domestic violence in South Asian communities so what made you create the Nasli Project and what are the goals of this digital space? Yeah, so Nasli Project was co-founded by me and my friend Radisha. So Radisha had actually kind of done like a like social media call. So she said, you know, I, Nasli Project is the name. Mm-hmm. This is kind of, I think what I want to do, which is like domestic violence awareness. But other than that, she didn't really have anything developed with it, right? And so I reached out to her like immediately and I said, I've like been passionate about the subject for years because I've always been passionate about talking about the things that often are not talked about in communities that are like severely affecting like the population. And so we, you know, collaborated, we connected right away and we basically built it from the ground up um, and planning everything. And so the goals of Nasli Project is really to, I think, first and foremost, just create conversation creating a space for people to talk about domestic violence and share their stories and share information and education on it. Because I think there's a common misconception that it doesn't happen in my community. It doesn't happen in my family or like with my friends. I feel like all South Asian people, like it's in rural, like South Asia, like it's the rural communities that still have this like backwards way of doing things, but it's still prevalent in our communities and it's still like very dangerous. It's still something that we cannot ignore. Right. And like, just because women are empowered now in certain spaces doesn't mean they still don't suffer from this, right? Mm-hmm. And so Nasli wants to be kind of like that like go-to space for information, education resources, um, resources for victims and survivors as well with different shelters and different you know programs that they can kind of like fall into so that they can get the help that they need. And eventually I think we just want to be the kind of, you know, platform that allows people to understand like they're not alone and that this is something that we can, if we all work together, we can create that like cultural shift away from like just blindly and silently accepting this. And, you know, the response like has been really great. I've had like a lot of people tell me that it's something that needs to be addressed and they're really glad I'm addressing it and that we're addressing it with Nasli. And I think there's so many questions people have that they're just afraid to ask. So even with like generational cycles of trauma, right? Like so many of us have like parents, grandparents, great grandparents that have suffered from domestic violence and mm-hmm. half the time they don't realize it was wrong, right? So like, how do you approach that conversation? How do you tell them, you know, that 
they actually suffered abuse, right? And they, it's, it was traumatic. And like, how do you kind of not reinstate that like grieving process without hurting them further, right? And how do you have patience for these conversations? How do you bring it up in communities that don't want to acknowledge it? Um, so I think Nasley's really doing, it's one of those things where it's like, we might not be like, get a million followers or anything, but I think the lives that we can touch is what's the yeah. most important thing. How can we destigmatize in the conversation about domestic violence? I think kind of explaining that domestic violence is not something that's like happens just to like weak women or like that bad people do like commit this. Like a lot of it is the idea that like some people don't even recognize what they're doing is wrong. They've been taught from a young, they saw it from a young age and they're just like repeating that cycle of behavior this idea that there's power dynamics at play like there's so many layers to the issue because I think a lot of times that like, people you know other people will look at domestic violence victims and be like why are you in that relationship like why did mm. you stay you know wrong you're being hurt but there's so many layers to the issue there can be financial abuse there can be emotional psychological abuse there's you know social pressures to stay in like marriages or partnerships um in family you know the idea of like the family is the most important thing and you yeah. have to stay together amongst everything and like you know these are like temporary troubles and like god put you through it uh to it so he's going to get you through it or like maybe you deserved it from like karma like these are all so there's so many layers that people don't see and so i think just explaining you know there's different levels to the issue right and there's different contributing factors and first educating people right telling them what is domestic violence what are the contributing factors you know what what can it look like what are the red flags looking like right and telling them that there are ways to live without having to suffer through it you know because people think that it's either suffer through it or like your life is going to you know go to shit right so at the end of the day educating and just like having people open at least open up the conversation because to be honest, a lot of it is just the fact that we've just stayed silent for so long. Yeah. I think it's like the first few steps to like actually addressing the issue. I want to reiterate your point that there's so many complex and layered factors in a relationship. It's so easy to say to someone that they should just break up with their toxic or abusive partner, but we really have to be open-minded and we have to think about the reasons as to why that person or friend still chooses to stay in that kind of relationship. Um, I think it's also important to be open-minded, like I mentioned, and learning how to destigmatize the conversation about domestic violence through education, especially. It's also really crucial to call out problematic and toxic behaviors at a young age, which we don't do in our society. And so we just keep perpetuating these really harmful actions as we're growing up and then bringing those actions into our relationship. One of those things where, like, as a child, it's hard to call it out because you don't even know that it's, like, right. not acceptable, right? And so it's just the normal. And that's the thing. Like, we've accepted this as a norm. And so to the point where people will even, like, actively go against people that are trying to draw attention to it to, like, try and stop making it seem normal, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was talking to actually a cousin of mine who had apparently done um, a talk on domestic violence in my community like years ago like maybe like 10 years ago at this point right and she was like kind of recounting how like when she was trying to organize this talk like they were kind of like almost like sabotaging her at every step they were making it very difficult for her to get a spot to talk about it they initially were doing so much pushback on it saying like is it going to make other people uncomfortable like this is something that's very negative we don't want right. to talk about it. 
partner and then they like gave her like a very like bad timing spot in like the program just so that it was like almost like people wouldn't come because it was like during such a bad time but she you know ended up you know she took it anyway because she's like I'm gonna do it because the alternative is that they're not gonna let me do it probably and she ended up having over 100 people show up you know because people cared and like that's what I think almost they were afraid of was that like you know, there's going to be people in our generation, you know, in these coming generations that won't sit down silently and just take the things that our, you know, generations before us have taken for years. And so, you know, understanding that there's going to be that pushback, like on every level, whether it be on like a community level and a family level and a friend level, um, but still like pushing that conversation gently and understanding that it's not about attacking or accusing, right. it's about creating a shift. And that needs to like happen in this community and so people can be safe and people can be healthy and people can be happy you know at the end of the day and that's what should be prioritized over just saving face or you know pride and ego right do you think there's an underrated resource survivors should further utilize Mm, you know I think just in general I you know it's a kind of a hard question because I think survivors there's still like so much stigma, you know, to domestic violence survivors. Um, and I think a lot of it is also, there aren't that many like strong widespread resources that can equally help every person in every situation. Um, but I think, you know, starting off by like just reaching out to shelters, cause like while you might not need the housing, um, they often have like professional development programs that can help you get, you know, a better job or a more secure housing, or they can, you know, open doors for you, or they can give you other resources like, psychological resources to help you you know kind of like treat your you know heal through your trauma right and I think just like starting off with those you know reaching out to like nearby shelters because while there are specific ones for South Asian women which we do highlight on our page um, there's also just like so many other ones that kind of like speak to the general you know domestic violence survivor population and so I think just starting off with you know reaching out to those organizations first reaching out to the different hotlines that are there, you know, like sometimes you just need a conversation to like help someone kind of like bounce off ideas, like help you navigate like a potentially dangerous situation. Um, Also just understanding like, you know, connecting with other people that have like suffered through it and like finding community and understanding you're not isolated and alone is something that is so important because community, like a strong community is really one of the most powerful resources you can have because not only Will they, you know, empathize with your experience, but they will do what they can to help you. So really just kind of finding that community, you know, and like reaching out and like hopefully, you know, with Nasli, like more people will learn to reach out also to the victims and the survivors and, you know, help them realize that it's not, doesn't have to just fall 100% on their shoulders. Like Mm -hmm. we can all be an active part in the solution. So what's the most important thing you've learned so far in working at the Nasli project? I think, you know, kind of, you know, demystifying or like deconstructing the idea of like being a savior. It's like one of those things I think a lot of, and that, that's like a, you know, a general social impact thing, right? The mm-hmm. idea of like, you want to save people, you want to help people, you want to be the one that like saves them from their situation. But in reality, you can't save anyone from their situation, especially when you're not a professional. Mm-hmm. So I think understand there's going to be people that have maybe very close ties to someone that is currently experiencing domestic violence and they're going to want to be the ones that get them out of it. But in reality, they're, you could potentially worsen it and you could potentially make it more dangerous for them. 
Um, so really educating yourself on like the things that you can do, which is generally just being a support system and listening ear and like looking up resources yourself to share with them in a safe manner, um, but redirecting people to like professional mm-hmm. understanding that professionals are there for a reason. Like they've mm-hmm. gone through training, they have done the research, they've done all the training that they need to, you know, effectively extract people from dangerous situations if that's necessary and also help them navigate like the life out after their situation and kind of help them build a new life where they can be you know successful and happy and safe um so I think that's like one of the most important things because I think a lot of people like they feel this pressure of like if I like start learning about this I'm gonna have to like learn how to save someone mm-hmm. you know and like I'm gonna like I'm gonna go save somebody but in reality it's like you know like calm down like you're just you're also like only human you know so there's like only so much you can do and should do in a situation that it could potentially turn very dangerous for you and the victim um but I think it's like you know that idea that there's so much to learn still like even for me like growing up and being really passionate about this subject and like learning what I could every single day I'm learning something new and learning new ways about going things and like understand that there's might have been things I did in the past that might have not been the most helpful or things I said in the past that might have not been the most helpful and like how do I approach different you know people and different you know groups of people and how can I navigate those spaces respectfully um, and respectful of their situations and their experiences so it really is about just like being a continuous learner and understanding it's about consistency right Mm -hmm. it's about continually showing up and not choosing to stop when it gets hard or, you know, you don't get the glory of being the person that saved someone. This reminds me a lot of one of the conversations I had in my women's studies class last year about the importance of community and realizing the resources that we have around us, like professionals and support groups that can help us navigate any difficult situation we're going through. Um, It definitely doesn't have to fall everything onto you as an individual to quote, save someone. Certainly, of course, it's important to help out as much as you can, but also remembering that there are lots of people, groups, and places out there, like the Nosley Project, for example, that can support them. Mm-hmm, 100%. And so how can people be involved with the Nosley Project? So the first thing we can do is follow us on Instagram. So we our Instagram is at Nosley, N-A-Z-L-I dot project. Um, and so right now we've just started a few weeks ago, so we're still definitely growing and still working out the kinks, but we've started a bunch of different things. So we have, um, informational highlights, you know, posts that go on to just kind of like break down domestic violence and explain them a little bit more. We have, you know, survivor spotlights. So we have, you know, different survivors come up and tell their story and experiences and we do organization highlights and we have you know just other activist highlights as well and we have a card link in our bio where there are um, a more there's a continually growing list of extensive resources for victims and survivors um, and places to donate petitions to sign Um, so definitely a great place to get started and involved and hopefully as we grow we can offer more you know different types of events or seminars and collaborations that will really help the people that follow us you know widen their impact as well Awesome. I'll be sure to link all of that stuff in the description of this episode, so be sure to check out the Nosley Project. And so besides writing and managing the Nosley Project, you also dance. So I'm wondering how do you use all of these mediums to engage with your creative side and feel empowered? Yeah, dance is something that is so special to me. And I think it's like kind of funny, like I always refer it to as like as my natural state, because dancing like is always the time 
that I feel the most like free. It's the time I feel the most powerful. It's the time I feel the most beautiful and strong. Um, and I'm like the type of person, like I literally wake up and like dance like every day. Like even mm-hmm. if I have, even if I have like two, three, four hour practices, like I will always be dancing like throughout the day. Like that's like my number one kind of like procrastination thing is like, I'll just get up and dance and like not do my work. Um, but besides just being a method of procrastination, I think dance is really healing. I think it, you know, I never used to consider myself very creative because I was like the one person out of like the, me and my sisters that like did not get the artistic gene in the sense of like, visit like, you know, medium art with like painting or drawing. Like I can barely draw a stick figure. So my sisters were literally like, you're not artistic. You're so bad at this. And I was like, man, I'm not artistic. I'm not creative. But when it comes to dance, when I use dance as my medium and writing, you know, there's just such a different side of me that comes out. And I think there's something so, you know, healing about just being in flow and like understanding that like this is dance is a hundred percent me. Like I can be whatever I want, you know, I can do whatever I want, you know, I can tell stories, which I love doing through dance because Indian classical dance, a lot of it is just storytelling. And so when growing up doing that, it made me so interested in how you could literally just communicate a story without saying anything. And even in a language that other people might not understand, just like with your hand movements or your body positioning or eyes even. And recently I've actually, you know, kind of like looked more into like how dance can be used as therapy for like a lot of people as well. And so I think that's kind of like my next future focus, I think with dance is like helping other people kind of like feel empowered and strong and beautiful in dance, like no matter if they identify as a dancer or not. And I think finding that whatever medium, you know, speaks to you, whether it be, you know, writing, whether it be dancing, singing, art, you know, there's so many ways to be creative, even like you know, coding can be creative, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that is so limited in scope. And when we broaden our range of what can be considered creative, we can understand that like everyone's kind of an artist in their own way, right? And I really enjoy identifying as an artist now. And like, I used to be someone that like in certain groups, I would like hide the fact I danced. So like, they'd only find out like years later that like I was a dancer Mm -hmm. and I was a good dancer because to me, I was like a little bit embarrassed of it for some reason. Um, but now I just kind of confidently do it. And I think it's like one of those things that's really offered me a chance to be confident. It's offered me, um, a chance to teach and, you know, connect with people. And it's like really helped build my sense of self. And it's a very strong part of my identity that I hope to continue to share. And I think having a creative outlet in whatever way you want is always a great escape from, you know, the stresses of like normal life. Exactly. Um, And it's something that people love connecting over creative things. I think it's like one of those things that you're creative because it makes you happy. It brings you joy to some degree. And so finding people that connect with that joy in whatever way is always really exciting. Yeah, I totally agree with that. For me, I also dabble in various mediums like photography, design, Mm -hmm. social media, podcasting, like these are all creative ways for me to express myself and also tell a story. And like you mentioned, like these mediums have definitely helped me just escape from reality and just pour myself out into my work and it helps me relax I'm really really blessed that I have these like mediums for me to just you know do whatever I want and like express my own emotions and thoughts and also you brought up of building a community through all of these things because I yeah I definitely found you know especially with photography and like podcasting like I've found an amazing community of like photographers and podcasters that uplift each other up and tell each other like advice and tips so yeah it's just like really exciting to find those communities and really connect through you know what you're passionate about 
Yeah, it's so interesting how, you know, community always is like the center of everything, right? And that when you embrace the part of your creative side in a creative medium, like you suddenly find new ways to be creative in other ways. Like, for example, yeah. I used to just be, you know, dance was just my medium. And then I started getting really, when I got into college, specifically at Duke, I started doing videography with dancing and like really seeing the art behind that and being really interested. Mm-hmm. I loved staging projects and like became so much more interested in like lighting and yeah. formation and all that. Um, and my community was, I mean, they're phenomenal. Like the NC dance community is like so uplifting. They're so warm and friendly. And like, for the first time I was like doing, like dancing in front of people that had never known I was a dancer, you know, growing up. And I was doing, you know, like hip hop inspired movement, which was definitely not something I'd formally ever learned before I got to, you know, Duke. And so it was so terrifying to dance in front of people that like didn't already have the idea that I was a good dancer. So it felt yeah. like I was auditioning for like the title of dancer again, um, but they were so warm and welcoming. And I have like such a strong community there. Like half of them were like pubbing rise and like I didn't even expect them to pub rise because they're just so supportive. And it's so awesome to have people that not only support you when you're engaging on a creative side, but because they like you, like you are your art, right? It's not like it's a separation. So I think it's super dope to like have people. And I love that more people are engaging in their creative side, especially like with quarantine and like social yeah. distancing. Exactly. Yeah, like I was like, I mean, for example, for photography, like when I made my um, own Instagram account for specifically for my photography, like I was super nervous about people finding my work and me branding myself as a photographer. Like maybe I'm not a photographer. Like, I don't know if I'm good enough for this, but people actually, I feel like that's all, that was all in my head because people Mm -hmm. were really supportive, like hyping me up and people started finding my work and, you know, people started wanting to collaborate with me. Like, people are mostly there to uplift you and like support you in you know your passion and definitely I I'm really glad that people are connecting with their creative side especially quarantine like I made this podcast I've always wanted to start a podcast but you know with school and everything it's just been always like in the back burner but then um, quarantine happened and one of the I guess good things that came out of that is me starting a podcast and connecting to this other creative side of me because I started only with photography but then I discovered graphic design and then I was like oh this is something that I've never done before but it was really exciting for me because it was another medium for me to like try out and just experiment with and then now podcasting it's another way for me to do storytelling so yeah Mm -hmm. you previously talked about imposter syndrome and I kind of want to talk about that for a little bit how do you overcome imposter syndrome or even the need for perfectionism and the spaces you've been so far Imposter syndrome is one of those things I think I've been dealing with for a while. And it's because I think whenever you're a young woman of color going into any space, you often will feel that way unless you're surrounded by other women of color, which is often Mm -hmm. very rare. Um, So I feel like I've had a lot of, you know, experiences like in recent years specifically, like once I got into college about kind of feeling like an imposter, you know, because I think women often feel that way. We feel like we're not 100% qualified. We think that we should be doing more. Um, and I used to be a perfectionist. Like everything had to be like, I had to have this like whole like perfect image, you know, set to like the public. I wanted people to think everything was effortless. I wanted people to think I was naturally just like getting great grades and I was this smart or like I was doing all these things and like I did, wasn't breaking a sweat, right? But it ended up just being exhausting. You know, it was just one of those things where I was like, why am I, like, who am I doing this for? And like, why do I feel the need to be perfect? And it was because I felt that if I wasn't perfect, people weren't going to like me. But why would people, 
like people don't identify and don't connect with like an image of perfection they connect with like the imperfections and the struggle and the things that make you real right mm-hmm. and so you know I think understanding and like you know kind of like naming the monster right like before I didn't really have a name for imposter syndrome I didn't really know what it was and like I just kept experiencing it and I couldn't explain to myself like why I was feeling that way so I kept thinking like you know Shauna like you have to stop being so not like unconfident like you have to be like just go after it like why are you feeling this way why are you self-sabotaging like I don't get it right because like in my mind I was like a very confident girl like everyone told me they're like you're so confident you're so accomplished like you do everything like you don't even see like you're in chaos but like you seem like you got everything under control yeah. um and I was like me yeah. in a nutshell right yeah. and, like, a lot of girls in a nutshell I feel like it's just like I mean everyone you know I feel like a lot of my friends always joke they're like you're just in a constant state of chaos but like you come across like everything's fine like just by you and I was like yeah the chaos is like the place where it gets the hardest right it's easy to just pretend everything's fine but I think it's harder to just admit that you know what I'm tired or you know like this was really hard or you know like I'm not the greatest at this and like you know being young when I was younger like when I wasn't good at something like I hated it I was like why am I not good at this like especially when it came to school I was like so insecure about it because I was considered like my identity was being the smart girl was being the smart girl being the girl that had it together and so when you have something that's like clearly you're not like doing the best at it going against that part of your identity you get defensive But then, you know, as I got older, I realized, you know what, it's okay if I'm not perfect at everything. And it's because like, I have the things that I'm good at, you know, and I'm great at. And I think, you know, it's not that like me not being good at something means it's like, I'm never going to get better at it. And the idea of like progress over perfection, you know, has like really started resounding with me. And like, as I get older, you start realizing like, all the adults you thought had it together when you're a kid really oh, don't yeah. have it together. And I think it's one yeah. of those things where you realize you're an adult when you see other adults like kind of swinging it all the time. Um, so I guess for like, you know, getting over imposter syndrome is understanding, like naming the monster, you know, like understanding what you're dealing with and understanding like it's never going to hundred percent go away because I think especially as women, it's like one of those things that just kind of stay with you for a lifetime. And like every single time you go into a space, that's different and that's like a one step bigger than those days you've been in the past you're always going to feel a little bit nervous and scared and scared you're not going to measure up but there's a reason why you're in that space and you have to believe in that you know and so for the spaces I've been in I've tried to take a perspective of they probably never met someone like me because there's only one person like me right so there must be a reason why I'm here and you know maybe I might not be able to contribute in the ways people who've been in the space have before but I'll be able to contribute in a way that I can only contribute and I'm going to offer a perspective that I can only contribute. And for that, they're going to be better for it. And so understanding and not devaluing your own strengths and your own perspective and your own experiences and taking that with you. And, you know, being unapologetically yourself is one of those things that I think will get you a lot further and help you understand, like, you can't be an imposter if you're yourself, right? <laughs> Just yourself. 100%. Yeah. So how have you learned how to pursue things that other people may have initially not wanted for you or never been done before yeah I think something I joke around that like I always have to like do something you know kind of shocking to my parents to make sure their hearts are working like every other year and it's because they always hate it when I like just like randomly decide to do something different Mm -hmm. and I think it's like you know growing up I was always kind of like I just did what my parents told me and I did what they recommended because obviously you know like I respect their opinion I respect their experiences and like what they wanted for me and I wanted to make them proud and happy but then at one point you know as a senior and like a freshman in college really I realized I wasn't really that happy 
And I was wondering why, you know, and it's because I was never really making that many decisions for myself, right? And so I just decided like on a whim, no, not on a whim. It was well thought out, to be honest. I was always like one of those girls that like has like a plan secretly, like cooking in the back oh, and yeah, like, out until like I like release it. And I was like, what just happened, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I decided, you know, this first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to just shift to public health. I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I don't think I ever really did. I just did because it made them happy and it made sense to me at the time. Um, but I found my calling and like, it was like one of those things where like, when you find something that really calls to your spirit, it's like so hard to ignore once you acknowledge it. Right. And for me, it was public health and global health. It was the idea of like, I loved everything about it. It just like spoke to all my strengths and interests. And like, I love the people I found in it. I loved the classes and like the coursework. I never thought I was going to be one of those kids that loved their major. Like I thought it was a lie. Right. But I loved public health and I loved it a lot. And so that was like the first thing I did. And I talk about it in Rise, like that first conversation when I revealed it to my mom did not go well. <laughs> but eventually, you know, like I just like realized like that was like, I think almost like the Kickstarter of like me, whenever I did something that really spoke to me and really called to me, like other opportunities opened and the response was so positive. It was like, I was meant to do it. Right. And so even if other people don't see that, you know, I can see it for myself and I feel so at peace and happy. And I think I become the type of person where like, for example, when I went to public health, like all of a sudden I decided to transfer and I got to Duke, which I was literally rejected from Duke my senior year of high school with like double the acceptance rate. So like the odds Where did you transfer from? Nova Southeastern University, which is a small private university in Fort Lauderdale. It's definitely getting a lot more people, but it just like wasn't at the time that their public health, you know, program had just started. So they weren't that established. And so I decided I was going to just kind of like try my luck and just I applied to UNC and Duke ended up getting into both and chose Duke which was really exciting at the time but I was like I never thought I would go to Duke after I got rejected Mm -hmm. senior year Um, and it's just like one of those things like all of a sudden that opportunity you know came together and then I went to Duke and then I found I reignited my passion for dance and then I started you know teaching a lot more and being more interested and then I started realizing people would want to pay me to teach them to dance, right? And then that became something that was more legitimate, a dream of mine that I had always had, but never really made strides yeah. to do so. And then, you know, Rise came out of Duke, right? Like, I don't know if I would have been reached out to the way I was if I hadn't been there and followed my intuition. So it's one of those things where, like, other people will never truly understand 100% of your motivations and your decisions, and you have to learn how to just be okay with it and understanding like most of the time it's not because they like want you don't want you to succeed it's because they're afraid you won't and so but you can't let their doubt affect your journey you know you have to do what's best for you because you know yourself the best at the end of the day there's times when like exercise caution and like be definitely plan you know don't just like go in without a plan but at the other end of it as well it's like you never know unless you try and like at the end of the day, life is all about just collecting experiences for like the mosaic of your life. And so for me, it's like, why will I, why would I just like not connect, like collect experiences that really interest me or excite me, or at least, at the very least, it's going to teach me something, right? And at the end of the day, I know myself enough to know that like, I'm never just going to like sit down and like let life beat me up. Like I'm going to like stand up my back as much as I want. And I'm going to like make the life that I want you know and like I'm strong enough internally and I have a strong support network where I know like if I fail like I can rebound and get back up and just try the next thing yeah I feel like as long as you follow what you want and what you're passionate about then that's all that matters I also want to emphasize your point that once you follow that passion it will open up doors for you 
like the most amazing thing is when you follow that idea or interest that's been kind of always in your head but a part of you is also not so sure about it like you might think that it might be a failure or a mistake at the end but definitely taking that risk is really worth it because it will open up an abundance of opportunities for you 100% and so to wrap up this episode what's next for you do you have any exciting plans or any exciting goals yeah, I think, you know, with Rise, it's like one of those things, again, like, I don't really know where it's going to lead, but I think I'm just excited to see where it goes. So right now, I've like actually been reached out to by two different organizations so far that are hoping to do events with me in the spring, COVID permitting, which is like super exciting. Um, and I personally would love to do kind of like use my platform more intentionally on social media. I think that's like kind of like I've become like so interested in social media once I started doing Rise because I saw how all these different you know activists and advocates were using yeah, it in a way that was like representing themselves but also like spreading a message and I thought it was super cool so if I find the time I will definitely try and like you know explore that a little bit more but definitely just working on Nasli I really enjoy doing Nasli right now and finishing out my senior year at Duke you know and all the chaos that's going on hopefully just connecting with organizations and people that I think really align with my values and I think just kind of like carving my own path the way that I know which is literally just trying things and seeing what works out um but I'm really excited to just see you know what Rise can do for the people that are interested in it and hopefully you know reaching out to young women and like creating workshops or seminars or just like community groups that they can all connect with each other and you know really find strength and unity and I think just like creating opportunities not just for myself but other people is what I hope to be doing in the future. I love that. Well, I'm so excited to see where your book and where Nosley takes you. I'm really hoping Thank that you. your plans and like all of that happens next spring, hopefully. Thank you so much for joining me today, Shauna. I had an amazing time talking with you. Yes, here. Thank you so much for having me. And that was today's episode with Shauna Abraham. All of her links will be in the description of this episode. Be sure to order her book and also be a part of the Nosley Project community. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow at OffSheGoesPod2 on Instagram to stay up to date with future episodes and for just amazing bonus content. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll chat with you soon. Bye!